morning, Lakeview. I'm happy you're here today. I don't have that blankie in my back pocket, I promise. I put it back in the treasure box. I'm glad you're here today. I'm glad it's March. Oh, even though it feels a little bit like November out there, I tried really, really hard to wear color for you this morning just because it's March, but I just went back to my basic black, sorry. Maybe by Easter, I'll be able to put the color on. Uh, Before we jump into our teaching series this morning, I wanna add a couple of things to that spiritual formation video. Um, As I said in the video, each week, if you visit our website, you'll find a button that says Lenten Practices. And if you go back every week, there's gonna be a new video about a new practice of detachment. So I just encourage you to go there. We'll nudge you on Sundays, but we're not gonna show the videos on Sunday morning. You can take advantage of those in your own time and then just add the practices that you uh, are invited to practice, the ones that sort of compel you, that draw you in. So keep going back. In addition, we have posted there a couple of resources for daily readings during Lent. The first one is Falling into Goodness by Chuck DeGrout, and the second one is Bread and Wine, Readings for Lent and Easter. And Alana will have the bread and wine in the bookstore next Sunday. Um, She really tried to have it this Sunday, but you know, COVID ever given? Are we still using that as an excuse? Suez Canal? Yeah, supply chain, everything is a little messed up. So um, it's, it's okay though, because these are resources you're going to use every uh, Lent and Easter season. So go to Alana and you can get that second book. And finally, Alana also has our Luke resource available in the bookstore. It's NT Writes, Luke for Everyone. So go and purchase that if you're interested. And if you've been collecting books along with us for the last six or seven years, you all have basically a complete set of commentaries. You basically have a pastor's library. That's fantastic. Okay, let's jump into our fifth week in our series, Retell, where we're examining the unique stories of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. Now, you might remember that there are four Gospels, right? And while each one of them tells the same story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, each author tells the story from a different perspective and to a different audience. And so while they tell the same story, they each tell it in a different way, making our understanding of Jesus more complex, deeper, maybe more complicated. And Luke has his own themes and stories that are unique to his book, including the passage that we're going to explore today, the story of the woman who anointed Jesus' feet. This story brilliantly ties together so many of the themes that Luke cares about, forgiveness, salvation, the way Jesus loves and cares about people on the margins. But today, we're going to tease out how this story reveals that Jesus deals in reversals. He's always turning things upside down and doing the unexpected. He ignores the expectations of the religious elite, and he levels the playing field by requiring each person deal with him and with his demanding grace. So we're gonna read the passage right off the top, and you're welcome to read along with me or open your Bibles or get on your device, but maybe I would suggest today that you just listen. Maybe you wanna close your eyes, just listen to the story and let it carry you along as I read. This is from Luke 7. 
When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, Jesus went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now a woman in that town who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, she wept and she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she took her hair and she dried his feet. She kissed them and she poured perfume on them. And when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. She is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50, but neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon replied, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. And Jesus said, you have judged correctly. And then Jesus turned toward the woman, but said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house and you didn't give me any water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I have entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. Her great love has shown this. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. And then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to mutter among themselves, saying, who is this who even forgives sins? But Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, when my kids were little, like all parents, I had to keep them busy while we made long trips in the car. And before the days when we had cell phones, my kids had these little handheld video gaming consoles called Nintendo DSs. Um, but because I had two minds about the video games, like I didn't like them and I didn't really want them to use them, but also I had to survive, I would also download an audiobook and play it over the sound system when we traveled. So we would get on the road and everyone would be in their corner. They'd have their books and their snacks around them. They'd get all comfy. And I would suggest that before we dove into the video games, we might want to listen to the audiobook. Usually, and unsurprisingly, the kids would decline and say that they would rather play their Nintendos. And this is what I would say. Oh, okay, that's okay. You play, but I want to listen to the book. So I'm going to put it on. We would start our drive and I would put the audiobook on, making sure those back speakers were also on. And one by one, I would watch in the rearview mirror as the kids would get invested in the story and forget about the video games. It was always Ella first, DS down, that faraway look in her eyes, and then Moshi, 
and then Kiedis, and finally, the big one, Brennan. All of them staring out the window, totally enthralled. Now, I could have come at them right out of the gate. You have to listen to the book. But I knew the power of the story that I chose to draw them in. When the story began, their ears would open and they wouldn't help, wouldn't be able to help but listen. And Jesus knew this too. He knew the power of a story to sneak past the walls that people had constructed in their hearts and minds. He knew how stories set up camp in our hearts. And Jesus uses all kinds of stories, especially in the Gospel of Luke. That's another one of Luke's unique characteristics. There are parables in Luke that we read in no other Gospel. And the stories he tells always draw people in. The crowds camp out on the hillsides to hear him. The disciples lean in closer. They don't really know what the story means. They ask questions. And even Jesus' enemies listen closely, caught up in the narrative that Jesus tells. Jesus knew the power of a story. Jesus knew that hearers become willing accomplices, even if they are hostile. And in this passage, we see that happen, don't we? We see the way that Jesus draws Simon into the story as a willing accomplice, even though he's hostile. Simon is involuntarily drawn in to the world that Jesus represents. But this uh, passage also is a story within a story. And we are also the hearers this morning. We are also invited to be accomplices. We are listening not only to the story of the gracious moneylender, which I could write another whole sermon about. We are listening to the story of Simon and the woman who anointed Jesus' feet and the story of Jesus himself. Just as Simon, hearing the story of the moneylender, couldn't help but place him in the story, so we are invited as we listen to this story to place ourselves in it, letting the story sneak past our defenses and maybe reveal something that we've missed. And so this morning, I just invite you to pay attention to what this story stirs in your heart, where you feel judgment and resistance, where something surprising is revealed to you. Pay attention to the words of Jesus. What do they say to you? in your situation. Become an accomplice as you listen. So let's jump in and play a game of compare and contrast with Simon and the woman. So Simon, Simon is a Pharisee. Simon has status, Simon has belonging. He knows the rules and he doesn't break them. Simon is also a man, which gives him status. He has a home, he is pure according to the law, and he is indebted to no one. Simon even has a name, unlike the woman. He checks all the boxes, he is in. The woman, on the other hand, does not have status or belonging. She is a woman. She is not known by her name, but she is known by her reputation. And she is clearly, deeply indebted. 
These two people exist on different sides of a chasm. There is no way on a normal day in their normal life, in their normal world, that these two would have any interaction. And for Simon, keeping this separation, this chasm, is central to him for maintaining not only his status, but his identity, and also, I'm sure, is central to his understanding of what it means to be faithful to God. Pharisee literally means separate. The Pharisees existed to be separate. See, the Pharisees grew out of a time before the Romans ruled the nation when the Greeks were in charge. And the Greeks attempted to secularize the Jewish people, to kind of smooth out their identity and integrate them into Greek culture. And after attempting to do this in relatively palatable, subtle ways, the Greeks got a little more intent on making the Jews fit the mold. And they began to kill priests and and desecrate sacred places of worship They waged this programmed attack on the Jewish people to get them to forget God and to be unfaithful. This happened in the time between the Testaments, just if you're trying to place it. And a group of Jewish people grew out of this resistance. They decided to fight back. They were gonna fight to keep the identity of the people, to stay faithful to God, to keep the law. They were not going to be evangelized and reformed by the Greek mind and culture. And this is where the Pharisees come from. Originally, they are good people with a good cause. But over time, instead of using their way of life to point to God and to the goodness of God's promises, they started to focus merely on the minutia of the law. They lost the forest for the trees. They lost the plot by focusing on the details. And by focusing on the details, obsessing about the law, obsessing about how to keep this identity that's separate and pure, They lost the intention, they lost the heart. And in their obsession to stay separate, they dug this huge chasm, this huge moat between them and anyone who did not keep the letter of the law. This is what Eugene Peterson says. Jewish identity had been preserved, but after a couple of hundred years, the identity had become more external than internal. They had become religious crustaceans. How good is that? All of their bone structure was on the outside. And so the first question that this story carries past our defenses, like a swift-footed quarterback, that makes us unwilling accomplices in this story is, Where have we dug chasms in our life? What ideas and identities that maybe began as heartfelt expressions of love have we begun to over-identify with? Where have we made uh, the details more important than the plot? What positions do we hold that require the existence of the other, that require this chasm between us and them? 
What filters are you placing on the world, like the Pharisees did, that help you build a little moat safely around your carefully constructed life? Our world is chock full of options for answers to this these days. We just put aside opinions on vaccines and protocols and convoys, and we are still left with a list as long as our arm. Views on LGBTQ plus issues, especially in the church, the economy, politics, theology, immigration. At least we're on the same side against the Russians though, right? Oh wait, another chasm. Can I remind you that when we focus on what separates us, we risk becoming religious crustaceans, protected from the outside, armored, with no way into our heart, to our interior, to our soft places. And I don't know about you, but I've heard stories about the Pharisees my whole life, and I have this tendency to villainize them because I've heard these stories over and over. They are self-righteous hypocrites, and that is not me. And I think, well, I may have my faults, but at least I'm not like them. But our friend Brad Jerzak reminded me of this this week. To thank God that I'm not like the Pharisee is to miss Jesus' point. This very act is to become the Pharisee. Just like the self-righteous, pious Pharisee, we are prone to fall into the same self-congratulating presumption, glaring down our noses at them. We despise them to prop ourselves up religious crustaceans, practicing exclusion and reserving only our place at the table, just like them. It is very possible to become self-righteous about the self-righteous and end up with that same chasm between us, we just find ourselves on the other side. And so if you're following along, what you'll realize is that none of us are safe, are we? We're all in danger of being that Pharisee. We're all building moats of our own, cutting people off, categorizing and dehumanizing one another, and building those religious or those exterior skeletons to scaffold and prop up our lives. It's the human condition. And what's the antidote? Well, Luke tells us in this story that the presence of Jesus at this table confuses the categories and brings new potential. Think about it. First off, the woman wouldn't have even been in that room if it weren't for Jesus. The passage says that when she hears Jesus would be there, she comes, she brings her perfume, she comes to greet Jesus, she comes to meet him. And then the presence of Jesus, the guy in front of her, brings out this incredibly emotional response. It's like it bursts forth from her. She falls on her knees and washes Jesus' feet with her tears, dries them with her hair, anoints them with perfume. The presence of Jesus evokes this surprising, unexpected response from the woman. 
and we wonder what the backstory is. Already, you see how the presence of Jesus is blurring the lines. She is not just a woman who is known for her sin. Something else is going on here. And we're being drawn into the story. And the Pharisee, knowing that the woman's past, you know, says under his breath, or maybe even in his own head, well, I guess Jesus isn't a prophet, because if he were, he would know that this woman should not be touching him. And all of you know this kind of muttering under his breath that the Pharisee is doing, because we've all done it. Our boss or our mom or our partner asks us to do something that we do not want to do, or that person has just done the thing that you knew they would do that you hate when they do it, and you get your passive aggressive on, right? And mumble, mumble, sigh, eye roll. But you get caught in the act. What's that? Does your mom, your boss, your partner? Oh, oh, nothing. I didn't say anything. Jesus turns to Simon with the equivalent of, what did you say? Simon, I have something I need to say to you. And Simon answers, oh, of course, yes, speak, teacher, bright-eyed and smiling after just rolling his eyes behind Jesus' back. And Jesus, calling Simon's bluff, reveals that not only does he know the story of the woman, he knows the woman's reputation, he knows even more because he sees right into Simon's heart and mind. There's an incredible irony here. Jesus, in fact, knows and sees more than Simon could imagine. And Jesus, with this deeper knowledge, with this supernatural perspective, makes sense of this encounter with the woman in a completely different way. Do you see this woman, Simon? No, you don't. You think she is a sinner. You think she is impure. You think she does not belong here. But this is what I see. I came into my, your house, and you did not give me water for my feet. But she has washed my feet with her tears. You didn't give me a kiss, but she cannot stop kissing me. You didn't put oil on my head, but she's anointed my feet with perfume. Her great love shows that she knows great forgiveness. But you? Well, whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Jesus speaks not one word of judgment to the woman. Instead, Simon, this guy who has it all figured out, who has played by the rules and done the right things, the one who thinks he owes nothing, he is the one who receives the dressing down. Jesus flips Simon's judgments on their heads. He reverses them and then turns it back on Simon. You want categories, Simon? I'll give you categories, says Jesus. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. 
He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. You see though, as Jesus does this reverse judgment, he also brings new potential to the table. He opens up a new way of seeing and relating by canceling not the people, but the categories. But some people don't want the categories canceled. Some people don't want the whole new thing. They're quite happy with and invested in the old ways of doing things. You can see pretty quickly why those who have a lot invested in the system do not hear Jesus' message as good news, right? While those who the system has left behind rejoice when they hear it. See, Jesus' judgment of Simon is motivated by the same forgiving grace that motivates his generous forgiveness of the woman. It's grace that brings life and healing and potential to both of their lives. It's simply that each of them has different things to lose. If Simon sees the world the way Jesus sees it, he will have to admit the worthlessness of the status, the purity, the rule keeping, the position that he has worked his whole life to get and maintain. But when the woman sees what Jesus sees, she gives up shame. She gives up her reputation. She gives up the categories that have left her with nothing to gain and everything to lose. So what do you have to lose if you see the way Jesus sees. Maybe you're like the woman right now. There is nothing worth more than Jesus' grace and newness. Your heart is open because Jesus has seen the worst of you and loved you back to life. He has brought you healing and hope. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Maybe you're a little like the woman in that the categories mean nothing to you anymore. You've done a little deconstruction and they have left you lost, those categories. They've left you left out and they've left you hopeless. Blessed are you. Blessed are you who are poor, who are hungry and who weep. Jesus says this in the book of Luke. Blessed are you for whom the categories no longer work or never have worked. The religious rules, the competition for status and money. Blessed are you who have never met the benchmark. The kingdom of heaven is yours. You will be filled and you will laugh because when you let go of the categories, you make room for Jesus, who turns everything upside down. Trust him. He has no use for the exoskeleton. He sees your heart. He sees you. Maybe there are some of us here today who do not or cannot see the way Jesus sees, whose faith is listless, whose faith is draining away. Maybe there's just too much to lose, a way of organizing your life, a way of spending your money where you've put your energy. 
Maybe like Simon, Jesus' words don't sound like good news. They sound like judgment. This is what I have to offer you this morning. The table features in many of the stories in Luke. Jesus receives a lot of dinner invites. This invite is the first of three times in Luke where Jesus is invited to the table of a Pharisee. And Jesus always goes. For the Pharisee, the table was a place of scorekeeping and protocols and rules. It was a place of quid pro quo. You gave back what you owed. But inviting Jesus to the table changed that. As soon as the Pharisees invite Jesus, new conversations, new ideas, and new ways of being came from him. And so if you realize you have too much invested, it feels like there's too much to lose, maybe what you need to do is invite Jesus to your table. You might invite him in the form of someone you disagree with, someone you judge, someone who offends the rules and strategies that you have made to make your life work. Put down the drawbridge and let the enemies across the moat. One of the ways that Jesus brought new possibilities was his openness. When Jesus came to the table, everyone was welcome. There's another story of Jesus eating around a table. It's his very last dinner, which we celebrate in the practice of communion and which we're gonna practice this morning. And guess what? At that table, everyone is invited. There's no unwritten rules and no expectation of a favor in return. Jesus invites you. But Jesus will tell the truth. So be ready. It might come in the form of, go in peace, your faith has saved you. But it might come in the form of a dressing down but all of it is grace. And so let's eat this meal together this morning with the words of institution from the Gospel of Luke. Grab your pods and I'll instruct you when to eat the bread together and drink the cup together. I received a little tip this week that if you push the little tab down, it's a lot easier to open, okay? Let's eat this meal together. He took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. And then he broke it into pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is his body broken for you. Take and eat. After supper, he took another cup of wine and he said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people. It is an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. This is his blood shed for you. Go ahead and drink.
as often as we drink this, drink this cup and eat this bread, we proclaim Christ's death until he comes again.